Today I am talking with a captain from a mid-sized agency in Washington State. Our topic for today is the wide-ranging new police reform legislation that went into law in July in Washington State. Many states are enacting police reform bills into law, but to date, few go as far as the new laws in Washington. Because of how they are written and their overall scope and restrictiveness, these new laws have been met with concern and confusion within law enforcement on how to interpret and implement them. Officers are finding their hands tied when it comes to apprehending and arresting criminals, when it comes to protecting those in mental crisis, and when it comes to protecting the public. These concerns are shared among citizens around the state who are seeing a rise in crime, but now new limits on what police can do about it. There currently is a debate over whether these changes will help or hurt public safety. And so I wanted to turn to this captain to get his reactions and to understand what he is seeing as the impact not only on law enforcement, his department, but also on community members. Captain, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. In the process of doing this podcast, I've been trying to stay on top of legislation as it happens around the country. In talking with officers from Washington State and even from across the country in the East Coast, they've referenced that the Washington State, the new laws are some of the, and even the Associated Press had a line in a story that said the laws constitute what is likely the nation's most ambitious police reform legislation. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that's what I've heard it referred to as. I know there are many elements to this, but there are some elements that are rather disturbing in the sense that it makes it harder for police to do their jobs. It's changed the way that we do our jobs. It's It has gotten rid of a U.S. Supreme Court ruling from oh, back in the 80s, Terry v. Ohio. So it's gotten rid of Terry stops for us. And it has really restricted the way that we do police work overall. We don't want to push back and say this is all all bad because there are some some changes that are good. And I think that overall will be positive. But some of these laws need some tweaking. They need some changes. And we need to be able to work with the legislators in order to make it effective so we can still protect the people that we're asked to serve and protect, that we can still make arrests and we can still get people help when they need it. And right now, the way that some of these laws are written, it, it doesn't allow us to do that. And for those who don't know what a Terry stop is, how do you describe that? Yeah, a Terry is an investigative stop where you believe that a crime has occurred, is about to occur, or is occurring. And it allows us to detain somebody physically, so put them in handcuffs, while we investigate to determine if a crime has occurred. So here's an example of a Terry stop. We get a call from a homeowner that says, there's somebody in my house, they're not supposed to be there, please come, please help. So the police respond to the house, we get a description. The person's a white male, he's wearing black clothing, and I can't really make out anything else on him. As the police arrive to the house, they see a male somewhat matching the description, and he appears to be walking quickly away from the house. Before, we would detain that person under a Terry stop and investigate. We would go get the witness and have the witness come out and determine if that was the right person. If they were the right person, great, they're under arrest. If they're not the right person, then we would kick them loose and say, hey, you've matched the description, I apologize, uh, please have a good day. And now, with the way that the laws are written, the only time that we can detain somebody is to 
is if you have probable cause. So you believe that this person has more than likely committed this crime. And in order to do that, we can't, now we have to do what they call a Terry request. So we have to say, Hey, sir, I know you probably maybe broke into that house. Would you mind staying here for a minute while we go get the homeowner and determine if that's the person? Well, criminals have quickly learned that you know they're never going to stick around. They're going to take off running, and there's nothing we can do to stop them at this point. We have to get the witness, and then we've got to drive around to try to find this person that we saw. And if we're able to find him, great, then we can identify him at that point and take him into custody, uh, arrest them. But if we can't, then it's just an open investigation. It goes to the detectives and they follow up after the fact. And you have to drive around with the witness. Yeah, we've got to put the witness in our car in hopes that we can find the person somewhere. It adds a completely new element and it it has really, I guess, minimized our effectiveness of making arrests when we arrive at scenes where we know, I mean, you get the feeling especially when you do this job for any amount of time, if that person, you pull up and they take off running, something isn't right because that's not a normal response. When you see somebody, if you just left the scene of a crime, that's a normal response. You take off running because you don't want to be caught. Well, until we have that additional witness or we went into the house and really looked around and see if they maybe left something behind that would be able to us to tie them to it, we aren't allowed to physically restrain them anymore. So that has really restricted us. And I think you've seen some examples statewide where this has happened, where Pierce County, they had a murder suspect that ran and they saw him running, but they didn't have probable cause. So they had to let him run away while they tried to find a witness to see if that was the actual person. So that's one example. And we've seen that happen even in our different areas that we police as well. What exactly happened in Pierce County? In Pierce County, they had a a murder happen. Um, Somebody was stabbed to death. As police were arriving, they saw a male running away from the scene and they had a canine on scene. They wouldn't put the dog out because they did not have probable cause that that was in fact the suspect, even though it sure made sense that it would be the suspect, but they did not put out the dog and they didn't chase the person because they didn't have probable cause to make an arrest. So it allowed a potential murderer to escape. And then that was something that they have to investigate. And then hopefully down the line, we can actually identify who that person was and then then arrest them. And... This has an impact on not only police, but the victim, the victim, well, the victim in this case is deceased, but the victim's family. I want to come back to how it's affecting citizens and victims, but to finish the thought, at Terry Stop, the elements that you're touching on here is that it used to be reasonable suspicion. Mm-hmm. Based, and that's what you're describing. They, they're running away from the house. Uh, they fit the description. I have reasonable suspicion to stop this person. Correct. Now you have to have probable cause, which is a higher bar. How is probable cause proven? The only way to de- determine probable cause is that the witness says, yes, that's the person? That's one of the ways we develop probable cause. Another way is... And it takes a lot of investigative. It takes fingerprints to come back. So we would we would take fingerprints at the scene, and then they would come back. And if they match the suspect, that we, but that's not a quick that's not a quick thing. So, I mean, in order to get to that point, you've got to have some type of evidence that you can link that person to the crime. Because we're going to now make an arrest on that person, and we would never make a physical arrest and book somebody on, in jail if we only had reasonable suspicion. We have to have something more. So what it allowed us to do was detain that person so they couldn't run away like they want to do because they don't want to get caught. And that allows us extra time to actually investigate and determine if, if that's what happened. So 
uh, reasonable suspicion has been a big help for us for years, and it's one of the biggest tools that we have used, and it's used all over the United States. Uh, so not having that tool for us has really hindered the way that we do police work, and it's changed it substantially. And and it is hard as a police officer to arrive on a scene, know that you have a suspect, and watch them run away from whatever crime it is they committed. It's it's one of the harder things that you have to deal with. And we got in this job to serve people, to make a difference, to put bad people away in jail, and to watch them run away when we know that they committed that crime is really hard for anybody to swallow. Right. And I, I have been told by officers outside of Washington State that it is the only state in the country that has banned Terry stuff. That's correct. Yep, we're the only one. Is a Terry stop also similar to an on view where you're driving down the street, you see something that looks suspicious? You can't even do that now. We can still get out on a suspicious stop, but again, we can't detain somebody if we feel like they have just committed a crime. So we can get out and talk. We can still get out and talk to anybody that we want, but we can't compel them to give us their ID. We can't make them stay there if we think a crime is, is about to occur. Uh, maybe we see somebody suspicious by a business late at night and they have no reason to be there and it looks like they're looking in windows. Normally, we would think, hey, this looks like a burglar is about to occur. Well, now we have to wait till the actual crime occurs, till they break inside. Then we've got to find an owner of that business to make sure that they want to prosecute and this person wasn't supposed to be inside by breaking the window. And trying to find some in the middle of the night to determine that is really hard. And then we've got to try to get the person just to hang out and wait with us and not take off running. So, or just leaving the scene because we don't have any way we can physically detain them. So they can just as easily take off and there's nothing we can do about it. So reasonable suspicion allowed you to at least put them in handcuffs and question them. Not arrest. Not arrest them. Yes. Probable cause allows you to arrest someone. Yes. Okay. So if someone, th these are other things I've read. If so, if you tell someone to stop and they run, that could be considered obstruction? It depends on why we're telling them to stop. I mean, if we have a, a reason they committed a crime or we feel like they committed a crime and we tell them to stop and they run, it could be obstructing. However, every department policy is a little bit different. Our department policy says that obstructing alone isn't a reason that we can arrest somebody. So we can't use the obstructing law to now put every person in handcuffs to use that to get to the actual probable cause, which we really want. It would be very rare that we would use that by itself to make an arrest. Okay. And then layered in with this, there is an aspect with persons in mental crisis. So in this AP story, police often respond to people in crisis who are not committing crimes. Under existing law, a designated crisis responder can order the person to be involuntarily detained for psychiatric care. So, but officers now are not sure they have the authority to use force to detain or transport those subjects, absent imminent harm or probable cause. Am I on the right track? Yeah, so House Bill 1310 says when we can use force to detain or arrest somebody. And the three reasons we can do it is to make an arrest if we have probable cause. So um, if we have probable cause, we can then make an arrest. We can put somebody in handcuffs to effect an arrest. So if you're arresting somebody for somebody else and they have probable cause uh, to prevent an escape 
that doesn't really apply to us. That's more for community corrections if they have somebody that's escaping a community corrections facility. And then the last one is to protect against imminent threat of bodily injury to the deputy, to another person, or to the person against whom the force is being used. So it's very restrictive on when we can actually use force to handcuff somebody. So going to the ITA, you respond to a mental health crisis. ITA, what is that? ITA is Involuntary Treatment Act. So it's a involuntary hold on somebody. If we send them to the hospital, we call them INVOLS, which is an involuntary commitment for them to go to the hospital, then see a mental health professional. And then that mental health professional determines I can help them right now. Or if they need to apply for a longer term hold on them, then it goes before a judge who makes the ultimate determination. We're seeing them more and more and we're having to walk away now where before we would involuntarily commit somebody if they were a danger to themselves or others or they were gravely disabled. And that could be they had slit their wrists and they wanted they want to kill themselves or they took a bunch of pills and they didn't want to go to the hospital. But if we were to leave them home alone, they were going to be more of a danger to themselves because they were most likely going to die or they continue to kill themselves. Well, now we're not allowed to put our hands on people and even assist them or put them on the gurney. And a lot of people don't want to go to the hospital. They just want to die. And our job was to help them to make sure that didn't happen. Well, now we can't do that. So we have to go. And even though somebody needs to go to the hospital, they need to be involuntarily committed to the hospital. If they don't want to go, we can't force them. So we just have to walk away. We have seen tragedy strike because of this. There's an incident that happened uh, right after these house bills went into effect. And we had a DCR, so a designated crisis responder, that asked for our assistance. They needed to detain somebody and send them back to the hospital. That person didn't want to go to the hospital. They ran from the police. They went inside their apartment and locked the door. And we're not going to go and force the door on something like this. About four hours later, they lit their entire complex on fire, their apartment complex. And it displaced, I think, about 48 families. There were some that were pretty seriously injured from fire. Thank goodness nobody died. But that was one example. And then we had another one not too long ago where the mom had called us, felt that her son, he was off his medication. He was suffering from PTSD. She wanted to get him help. She didn't know what to do. Uh, he hadn't committed any crimes. She left the house. We talked to her for quite a while and couldn't get her to not want to go home. We called the mobile crisis team. She had mentioned that her son had a gun, so that's not something we want to put ourselves and go to the house because we're not going to be able to help him anyway with an arm. He's by himself, so the best thing to do is leave him in the home, let him calm down, and have the mother go somewhere else. So we left her like three blocks away from her house, gave her multiple resources on who she could call. She didn't want her help, and unfortunately, she ended up going home, and her allegedly, because this is still an open case, but allegedly her son murdered her. So that was an extremely tragic ending to something we feel that these house bills really restricted us and didn't allow us to help these people. That normally we would have never gotten the situation because we would have gotten him the proper help and we would have never had to let her go back into that, I guess, so, into that home where she really wanted to go and we had no reason to not let her go there. So in the past, how would that have been handled? Yes, we would have gotten a call. We have been able to surround the house. We've been able to attempt to call him out, to talk to him, to get him the help. And then once we were able to get close enough safely, after really working with him and trying to get him help, get him to go voluntarily to the hospital, we would have detained him and, and sent him to the hospital on a, a stretcher to get him some help uh, in an aid car. But 
with the new laws, we don't have the ability to physically detain anybody, even if the whole reason we're detaining him is to get him, get him that help. And so we just weren't able to help him at all. We just had to leave the scene. It's frustrating for the police because, like I said, we want to help people. I can think of one other thing off the top of my head, and this happens quite often. All these different examples, I'm just thinking of a few. We had a female who had slit both of her wrists. Her boyfriend had called us asking for help. She told her boyfriend she was going to kill herself. We got there. She no longer had the knife, so she's not an imminent threat. She wanted nothing to do with the police. She wanted nothing to do with the fire department. She did not want to go to the hospital, and she yelled that she wasn't going to go anywhere. She went in her apartment and slammed the door and told us we couldn't do anything about it. So even though we saw her bleeding from her wrists, we knew that her intention was to kill herself. We couldn't do anything to help her. And as we were getting ready to leave the scene, we called the mobile crisis team, asked them to respond. Their ETA is usually from an hour to five hours. Plus, if anybody has weapons, they don't respond. So as we were getting ready to leave, the female came back outside and she actually ended up collapsing in front of the boyfriend. He picked her up, carried her over to where the police were at and said, well, now can you help her? So we were able to quickly call aid. The medics came and said that she was within minutes of dying from blood loss. So because she was unconscious, they were able to transfer her to the hospital. I'm hopeful that she's okay now because she was able to get some help. But it almost took a tragedy in order for uh, her to get the help that she needed because she very likely could have died there and, and we wouldn't be able to do anything about it to help her. And like I said, that is one of the hardest things we've had to adjust in this job is allowing people to just not want help and knowing that the possibility is that they could die and we can't do anything to help them. The mobile crisis team is civilian? It's a civilian uh, position. They're located out of Seattle. They operate in King County. Two of them respond to the scene. Anytime we have a mental health call now, we call them and request that they respond to assist because there's not a whole lot we can do. Now we're taking, keeping track of when we call them, if they respond. We had a naked person walking along one of the main highways here. He wasn't in traffic. There was nothing we could do before we would detain them, send them to the hospital for some treatment because they're a possible danger themselves being out in traffic or being close to traffic. Now we just have to let them go. We called the mobile crisis team a couple of different situations and they're overworked. They don't have the staff to do anything. So the, the ETA they give us is three hours and by three hours, who knows where that person's going to be. And like I said, it's not on the mobile crisis team. It's not their fault. They just don't have the staffing. When they're answering calls all over King County, they just don't have the, right. the power, the people power to go and respond to these things. Okay, and you referred to DCR. Is that a civilian? They are civilians. They are dedicated crisis responders, and they're like mental health professionals. So okay. they are the the one of the only people in the state that can mandate somebody is held or they can apply for them to be held. And then obviously that person goes before a judge and the judge makes the ultimate determination, but they can hold them for mental health reasons or request that they're held for mental health reasons. It, it sounds like the goal of these laws is to keep law enforcement from going hands-on with people in crisis, they want mental health professionals to do that. Correct. You have a mental health professional, in this case, a DCR, a designated crisis responder. They're dealing with someone. They need help. They call the police. Yep. So the means do not achieve the goal. There's nothing in place to 
fill the void that's been created by the law. It's almost like they made the law with the intention of having all these other great options available, but they haven't been available. And so they kind of, the back end stuff needs to be completed first. You need to have additional mental health professionals that are able to respond. Some of the cities have what we call the radar program. And the radar program is very successful. What it is, is a mental health professional teams up with an officer and they'll respond together to calls. That allows the police to make sure that they can protect the mental health professional from being assaulted or something while they're out on calls. But it also allows us and gives us that extra person that has resources that's available to them that we don't have necessarily available to us. But, you know, something happens at two in the morning. Who do you call? You call 911. Who do they send? They send the police. And what we can do now to help is very restrictive. And it's, it's really hard for us to help people now in these type of situations. And going back to where we started, it also affects crime and victims of crime. I saw on social media, Auburn, Washington PD posted video of a chase of a Lexus. The person had robbed a woman at gunpoint, stolen her car. The car had low jack. They were following it. Long story short, they weren't able to pursue, well, you would know better than I, but because they couldn't prove probable cause. So in the past, you could have pursued because the car met the description, or you knew that it was the car, but you couldn't prove the person driving it was the person who assaulted her. Am I right. getting that right? Yeah, so the only pursuits are, are way more restricted now as well. You have to have probable cause to believe that the person in the vehicle has committed or is committing a violent offense or a sex offense. And so that's one reason that you can still pursue somebody, but you have to have probable cause, and that's a very high standard to prove. The second reason that we can pursue somebody is if you have reasonable suspicion, and this is the only time you can use reasonable suspicion, reasonable suspicion a person in the vehicle has committed or is committing a driving under the influence offense. So if they're DUI, if they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or we at least have reasonable suspicion to believe so, we can do that. Those are the two reasons you can chase somebody. Some of the other things to keep in mind, you can't continue to engage in a pursuit unless you don't know who the suspect is. You know you have probable cause on them, but you don't know who it is. So the purpose of you chasing them is to identify them uh, by apprehending them. Or the person poses an imminent threat to the safety of others and the safety risk of failing to apprehend that person. So if you don't chase them, if you don't apprehend them, they could go hurt and or kill somebody else. So, so you have to make sure that, or at least reasonable believe that us letting them go would allow that person to go and commit a more heinous crime. And then you have to have authorization from a supervisor to be in the pursuit and that supervisor can't be involved in the pursuit. <laughs> and so there's a lot. And, and we've always had a pretty restrictive pursuit policy within our department, but this really, really restricts it a lot more than even before. Washington State Patrol, and where they have recklessly driven vehicles, people are racing, uh, people are driving 120 miles an hour on the freeway. Before, they would chase those people. Now, you're going to see a lot of people driving fast, and there's no reason we can stop them unless they're involved in a violent crime and we have probable cause to arrest them. So Washington State Patrol cannot pursue someone speeding at 100 miles an hour? Correct, yeah, unless they believe that they're DUI. And how would you get probable cause? Oh, it's just a circular argument. Yeah, so reasonable suspicion for a DUI, I mean, you would have to get 
somebody that's varying speed, somebody that's going in and out of the lane of travel. Those are some of the reasons, and you have to be able to articulate that well enough right? on why you think that's happening. I heard on a radio show some similar story of someone who had stolen a bus. The radio host was interviewing, I believe, the legislator that created these laws, and the legislator said, well, it's a stolen vehicle, so apparently that's not probable cause. And then the legislator said, well, just pull him over on a DUI. And, but it's like, but he doesn't follow the criteria for DUI. Exactly. I heard that, and I had the exact same thoughts. It almost feels like they want us to just say every, almost like every person's DUI, but we don't, we have to have those elements. And we can't just, just because they stole a bus or a car or whatever it is, doesn't mean that they're DUI. It means that they stole whatever they stole. We have to to confirm that that vehicle is stolen. But again, we can't just chase for a stolen vehicle. So they'd have to be doing a lot more crime, a lot more serious level of a crime before we could chase them. And is that because stolen vehicles are no longer, is that a different law where certain misdemeanors are no longer? Uh, That's still a felony to steal a car, but it's not a violent crime. And we can only chase for violent crimes. I got it. Okay. And part of what I believe is happening is there are people who are accusing the police of purposefully misinterpreting the laws to protest the law when what it seems is that the only thing that is clear is that it's unclear. Yeah, we've got a lot of questions. And us as police, we really lean on the legal advisors for the departments. They're the actual attorneys. They go through this. There's kind of a consensus between multiple legal advisors that we think this is what the legislatures want, but we don't even know for sure. So we've The attorney general is supposed to be defining and going through and hopefully clarifying some things for us. However, they said often the attorney general won't actually get back to us before the legislators are back in session in January. So we're at a point where we're probably going to have to wait till January. We're hopeful that they'll actually be willing to work with us this, this time with the different police agencies so that we can help make these laws work for everybody. Because like I said, we do think the overall intention makes sense. We just think the application wasn't 100%. And what is the overall intention? The intention is, well, at least what my belief is, is that their intention is to make people safe or at least feel safe. And unfortunately, with some of the things that they have done, it has done the opposite. And so we want to work together in hopes that we can come to to an agreement or at least some type we can meet in the middle with some of these things because we're allowing more criminals than ever to get away from us and we're allowing people that they wanted to protect without having any i guess any issues with the police they're actually allowing them to hurt themselves and us just stand by and not be able to help them so those are some of the things that we think are really important and things that we want to be able to help change and make a positive change so that we can all kind of work together for what they're looking for, ultimately. It seems that one of the concerns is that if the officer gets it wrong, he or she can be decertified. They're talking about how it's easier to prosecute police. That is also a factor here. For all of my officers, that's one of the biggest concerns because they're always trying to do the right thing. When you have a split second to make a decision, sometimes it doesn't go exactly like people think it's going to go, or maybe it doesn't look as pretty as people think it should look. And the concern is if they do something that they feel is right at the time, 
because they have that split second to decide and it turns out, oh, maybe they had another option. Are they going to now lose their job, be prosecuted, end up in prison for the rest of their lives? So you're saying if they don't follow the law exactly as written, they risk decertification, but also potential prosecution for breaking the law. Correct. And so that has really caused a lot of the officers to really take a step back. And some departments, they aren't responding to a lot of calls anymore. The Criminal Justice Training Center can now decide that if that officer maybe didn't act exactly like they think they should have, or maybe didn't, the conclusion wasn't the right thing, that now they can decide if they're going to decertify him as an officer. And nobody wants to be that test case. And nobody wants to see what it's going to take for somebody to get decertified. And the Criminal Justice Training Commission is the organization that trains officers in Washington State. Yeah, they're the only ones that train in Washington State. Okay. Qualified immunity is something different. And uh, there are some states that are getting rid of that, which means in those states where it's been eliminated, officers can be sued personally, civilly. So far, it's not in our state, thankfully. I know it was a discussion. The hope is that it doesn't go away because it really does protect officers. The qualified immunity allows officers to be protected by their department instead of having to hire a personal attorney and worry about losing their house and everything they've worked so hard for because something didn't go the way that the person feels that it should have, or maybe something doesn't go right on a stop. And they felt they did everything they were supposed to do. Now they're protected by qualified immunity. But if that goes away, then they could come after the officers uh, personally. But so the decertification, the officer is not personally liable. Correct. That's, that's kind of unrelated. The decertification means that you're not going to be a police officer in the state of Washington and you lose your job. I thought it meant you couldn't be a police officer anywhere if you're decertified. No, state of Washington, they'll decertify you. But if you go to another state, you have to then explain why you were decertified. And some of what I recall you're saying, and I've seen other departments do, is try to explain to citizens why you can't arrest the guy that just broke into my house. So is this another level that you are experiencing trying to educate the community? Yeah, the community has been very frustrated with this a lot of times. And when we try to explain why, and that's it, all we're trying to do, we're not trying to change it or make it seem like it's an issue that we can't help them with. We're just trying to explain the law and exactly what has changed and why we can't help them the way that we used to. So a lot of the public we've dealt with have been upset about the changes and they want to know who they can contact. And we just tell them to contact your local legislator if you have any questions and hopefully they can help explain things better on why they made the changes that they did. Because we don't, we don't have all the answers. We don't know exactly what happened or why. We just know that they're the ones that made the changes. So ultimately they can answer the questions on why things have changed. And my understanding is that law enforcement was not invited to the table when these laws were being made. The legislators claim that they were, you were, but you were not. Yeah, WACOPS is one of the big organizations that we have, and that represents all sorts of chiefs and police chiefs and sheriffs for the entire state. Do you And WASPIC, the uh, Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police? I know WACOPS is something else, but... Uh, WASPIC as well. WACOPS, oh. WASPIC, yeah, both of them. Everybody was not invited to assist with anything. So now we've been sending a lot of questions forward, asking them, how do we fix this? What do we do? What are the different ways? How can we help? How can you define this and that? Uh, and we're, we're waiting on answers for them. But at the time, 
we weren't invited to the discussions. And then other another element is less lethal. They, if I understand correctly, disallowed, what is it, the 40 millimeter a shotgun, I gather, which also shoots beanbags, non-lethal. Is that the accurate? Yeah, so they they defined things by it couldn't be larger than a 40 millimeter. Well, a lot of the less lethal rounds that we shoot are larger than a 40 millimeter. So we've had to turn in less lethal shotguns. We've got 40 millimeter. It's almost like a foam foam bullet. So it's really limited what we carry for less lethal. Now we're down to taser and pepper spray. Where before, and a lot of the intention of the legislators was to have more less lethal options. Well, unfortunately, the way they wrote the bill, it took away some of our less lethal options. So we're hoping to get that fixed as well. So I saw um, LAPD put out a video on their YouTube channel of a situation, a domestic violence, police respond, they get the woman out of the apartment, and as she's standing in the hallway, the abuser, alleged abuser, comes walking out with a knife. And they're able to shoot the less lethal it looks like they're shooting him, but it's the less lethal, which puts him on the ground, allows them to arrest him. He's treated at the hospital. He's not dead. This is, and they're not dead, and she's not dead. It has been a great tool for us, and it's something that is used, was used quite often to help in those exact situations. Still arrest people, still make sure that the scene is safe. When we need to protect people and save their lives, we don't have a lot of options anymore. So in the past, that's been a great tool for us to use and has been very successful in a lot of different calls in order to safely, yeah, they're going to have some bruises on them, but they're alive still and we can get them to the hospital and get them treated. Taking those tools away from us has really restricted what we do in a lot of those situations. We will always de-escalate. Time, distance, and shielding, that's a big thing. We train that all the time and we'll take as much time as we can but there are times where that person might take it. Like you said, they have a knife and they start advancing. Well, now if there's somebody nearby, that takes away. We don't have that time anymore. We've got a short amount of time. We've got to be able to do something and we've got to determine what the best option is. Can a taser hit somebody? The optimal taser range is seven to 15 feet. It is a very successful tool if you're within that seven to 15 feet. A less lethal shotgun has more range than that. So we're able to stand back further, which is great for what we want to do, which is, again, distance is one of the main keys we want to be able to do if we can. Right. Well, and tasers are a great tool, but they don't always work. They don't always work immediately. Correct. And I believe what you're saying with a taser or pepper spray is you have to be closer for them to work. And if they don't work, then you're out of options other than possibly deadly force. But if you have the distance that the 40 millimeter and less lethal shotgun provide you, you have options, and you're better situated to avoid deadly force, which is the entire purpose of less lethal. Correct. Is there anything I haven't covered that you want to cover? I think the only other thing I was thinking about is the, I don't know if you've talked about it already, but the drug possession law and how that changed. I, I would like to know, and I didn't know if that was state but go ahead on what you... So the Blake decision, which was the Washington Supreme Court ruled that the way that the felony drug law was written before with the word knowingly in there was unconstitutional. So they threw out the drug law. So all drugs were then legal. Well, now the legislators came up with what they were calling a Blake fix. Um, and that's House Bill 5467. 
what it has done is changed the possession of a narcotic to be a misdemeanor. However, it has put some pretty restrictive things in place. Now, the first two times we have contact with somebody, before we can arrest them, we have to refer them to a treatment facility. So we provide them a card with a phone number on it and tell them to call them. We have to document that we contacted these people two times. So we have to be able to prove that we've contacted them two prior times. The hard part about that is, and we see it all the time, somebody using heroin in the middle of the road, smoking meth out on the street. Before they couldn't do that, we would arrest them for being in possession of a narcotic. Now we go and contact them. They don't have to provide us their ID. We can't force them to provide us ID. We can only detain somebody for those very specific reasons, and this doesn't fit into it. So more than ever, we're having people saying, oh, no thanks, and walking away with their drugs, and we can't do anything about it. Now, if they stop and give us their ID, we'll put them in a database, we'll give them a card for a referral, and they'll walk on, and, and then that's their first contact. And then it'll happen again, most likely, and that'll be their second contact. And on the third one, we can then make an arrest on the third time and book them in jail on a misdemeanor. And then it's up to the individual city prosecutors if they're going to prosecute them. A lot of people will put them into community court in order to hopefully get them the help that they ultimately need. That has changed quite dramatically from drugs always being illegal. If you had them in your pocket, they were illegal. To now watching people walk away smoking illegal narcotics right in front of you or having pills that they're not supposed to have or anything like that. We just, there's nothing we can do about it anymore. Minus refer them to a referral place. Well, and I get it. The intention here is to get people help versus putting them in jail. But the challenge here is that while you refer them, that doesn't mean they will go get the help. There's no real system for this. And open drug use like that and continued drug use can then also lead to more crime. Right. I thought I had read that there's no more traffic stops for things like expired tags. You know, I saw a headline, Philadelphia police will no longer pull people over for minor traffic stops. So the, it's something that's happening in some markets. I think it's the ACLU wants that to happen, but that hasn't happened yet. We still have traffic stops for all those reasons. And I think it's important that we're still able to do traffic stops for those type of things, because if we don't, then why is anybody ever going to renew their tabs? Because there's no reason you're not going to get stopped. Right. Well, and I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I think a lot of the intention behind some of these things are that arresting someone who meets a description seems to unfairly target people of color. Traffic stops seem to unfairly target people of color. Is that part of the, the mindset behind these laws? I think that's what the legislators have said. I don't know necessarily. I've never seen the numbers to say that that's true or not true. But I think that's what the legislators have really kind of keyed in on. And this happened after George Floyd was murdered. And obviously that was shocking to everybody. And thankfully, nothing like that has happened here. But I know that that's a lot of the reasons that the changes have been made was because of that. Right. How long have you been in law enforcement? I've been in law enforcement for 15 years. Are you finding it still rewarding? Are you looking at this as a period you just need to get through? Are you going to leave? I think a lot of the people that work for me, including myself, we all are trying to keep a positive outlook on things. With our job, it's always changing. There's people that often think that they have better ideas or ideas how to make this job better. And... 
we're just going to continue to get through it together. We're going to continue to do our job. We're going to do the best job that we can do with the laws that are in place. And if they're not working, the hope is that the legislators take a look and say, oh, maybe this isn't working the way that we intended so we can make some changes. And we want to be able to work with them to ultimately make those changes. I think if we work together on these things, they've got a lot of great ideas, but they have never been out here to see what we deal with a lot of them. I think it would be beneficial if they were willing to come out on ride-alongs and see how it is with the new laws and how it's affected what we can do on a daily basis. It would just see for themselves what the police do because you don't actually know. You watch cops and they say, that's what cops do. And it's like, that is a very small part of the job that we actually do. And as much as we try to talk to people, help people, constantly help families, constantly help people to make their lives better, they miss a good portion of it. So yeah, we're very hopeful for in January that we're able to work with the legislators to make some changes that we need so that we can continue to help people and not be as restricted on what we can do because even just the mental health stuff alone, we feel most likely needs to be adjusted a little bit to make things better for everybody, to make things safer and to get people the help that they need and get them to the hospital when they need to get to the hospital and allow us to actually do that and help them get there. As you said Every officer I've met has gotten into the profession to, because they want to help people. And this is, I mean, you're already losing officers as it is. And this is just one more layer of making it difficult. It's a tough time to be in the profession. I still love my job and I will continue to do my job. And I'll continue to look at the positives and hopefully lead my officers in the right direction and make sure that they stay positive. But it is, it's not a job for everybody. But with this job, uh, we just have to expect that things are always going to change. There's always new rulings out there. And we'll do our best to follow what the laws are and uh, make sure that we're able to come back every day and continue to make the citizens and the community members safe. And that's all we can do. All right. Well, thank you, Captain, for being here today. I appreciate your shedding light on something that's important. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. As the captain said, he's been sharing information with his community members on how to contact their legislators should they have comments or questions. He shared with me a District Finder web address should you want to locate your legislator in Washington State to ask questions or to make comments. I will put the link to the District Finder web address in the written description of the podcast. Thanks for listening.